Welcome back to Arsenal Past Time of the Round, episode 17. Today we're joined by Carol Ruskevich. Carol is a true Renaissance man of our time, a famous and decorated brute aficionado, co-host of the wildly successful podcast and YouTube channel, Session Blood, and finally, a flesh and blood game developer. Carol, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing today? Great. And I just want to say great pronunciation on my last name. We don't really see and hear it often. So uh, yeah. Big, big thanks for, for getting it right. Um, hello, everyone. Yeah, my name is Carol, and I'm, uh, yeah, I like to play Brute. <laughs> for sure. Yeah, it took me a few times to get that one right, but, you, you know. <laughs> I think 17 times. Had to go, had to go back to my, my Russian roots there. So I just want to start off by hear, kind of hearing your origin story, your lore, right? So let's hear the story of how you originally got into Flesh and Blood. Yeah, okay, I'll start with my kind of TCG um, kind of background in general. I feel like it really sets the scene for, uh, for my involvement in Flesh and Blood. Um, but yeah, basically it all starts back in a little home, my hometown in Poland. Uh, the year is 1997, I'm not, uh, seven years old, and my dad bought me a Magic the Gathering starter pack. And, you know, at the time I was seven, I just liked the pretty pictures. Um, but yeah, I've kind of like got the basics of the game. I understood the game and, um, basically, yeah, that was, that was kind of it for many years. And if you, yeah, when we fast forward to 2003, when I was 13, uh, my family moved to New Zealand and, um, basically trading card games were a big part of my, um, upbringing in that way because, I couldn't really speak English. I knew a little, I knew how to play magic, but when I um, went to school here in New Zealand, um, yeah, basically I couldn't communicate, I couldn't talk. Um, but uh, one thing I could do is play cards. So um, yeah, I saw some other um, kind of school kids playing, playing magic and I joined in and that was basically what I did at lunchtimes every single day. And um, not only did it help me make friends, um, but it also helped me learn English because I started translating the cards. And so it was, you could say that magic really kind of helped me kind of, you know, learn the language and kind of build my life here in New Zealand. Um, and that's how I met a lot of, um, you know, the players here, Rohan Khanna, Kieran McIntaggett, um, Tom Penny, Mark Henderson, all these kind of flesh and blood players I've met through, um, you know, lunchtime's playing magic. Um, so that was pretty big for me, but it also started my kind of um, competitive drive in the game. Um, you know, once I kind of, we've developed a very strong um, playtesting group. We played a lot um, um, at that age, between 13 and 15, and we started going to tournaments. And that was a really big thing for me is that kind of, that really started my competitive spark, especially in, in trading card games. Um, and, you know, we would go to pre-releases, all these kind of regionals and with the host to going to nationals and, um, actually the tournament organizer for all these tournaments back then was none other than James White, you know, and that's how I met James was, um, many, many, many years ago. And, um, you know, that was already, you can tell that this guy is super passionate about what he does. Um, and that really kind of like stood out to me even back then. Um, but yeah, so, yeah, so I would, we would play a lot of competitive tournaments, um, but 
the kind of the there was one kind of cataclysm thing that happened to me. I would always play these kind of um, off meta, you know, like I, I was a competitive player, but I would always kind of try to do something different. Um, for those who know the kind of like magic terminology of the spikes and Johnnies and Timmies, I was always be more of the Johnny, the person who w- wants to do something that no one else does, um, something that can take people by surprise. And um, I guess that kind of and competitively, um, it kind of held me back. But at the same time, I didn't care because I got to do something cool. Um, but there was one regionals tournament um, that I was playtesting very hard. I actually had a really strong um, competitive deck. And um, I went into the tournament super confident. And round one, I versed one of my friends, um, which I, I was actually really happy about because he we play tested heaps and basically my deck had like a 90% win rate and I was just super stoked going into it and I for those of you who know magic I basically had a like didn't draw any lands and without lands you don't have any resources you can't do anything and then um, basically my game completely crumbled um, I lost to variants game two and magic is best of three so I kind of had that backup but game two, exactly same thing happened, and my whole kind of day started on a loss. I managed to win five five rounds in a row, but then I had a really bad pairing, and at that point, I was just kind of over magic. At 15 years old, I kind of stopped playing. I kind of threw in the towel. I'm like, you know, I hate this variance. I don't want anything to do with this. Um, you know, other so some of my friends like uh, Kieran and and Mark went on to play nationals and doing really well, but I was just kind of like, I'm done with this. Um, then yeah, fast forward like ten years into the future, um, the same group of people, our friends, um, we started this thing called the Pukanui Pro Tour. So you know, I went cold turkey, didn't play any trading card games for a number of years. Um, and then one of my friends started organizing this Pukanoi Pro Tour where we would um, go to some secluded batch, which is like a holiday home here in New Zealand. And we would go to this beautiful venue uh, surrounded by the most beautiful beaches in the world. Um, you know, the bushes, the forest, everything. Then we'd close the curtains and for a weekend straight, we'd just draft, you know, the, the latest set of magic. And um, that was just great because we got to reconnect, you know, everyone kind of went on in their life doing their own thing. But that was the kind of cataclysm that every six months we'd get together, um, lock ourselves in, in a holiday home and just kind of really, and we were all eight of us would be really competitive. So that really kind of like pushed us into um, kind of get the get the kind of competitiveness and the TCG kind of out of our system for a while. Um, but that really kind of helped me um, kind of still have that that spark for for the competitive play and for TCGs. Um, but yeah, in 2018, one of those mates was um approached me and was just like hey guys you know like all of us were just like um i know this the um james white is making a trading card game um he's he um he needs some people to like test the cards um is anyone interested and i was just like nope i don't want to have anything to do with this like 
And but that that's the first time I heard about flesh and blood, you know. Um, but yeah, basically I was just super anti. I'm like, I'm you know, I'm too old for this, I don't have time for this. Um, so yeah, even though I kind of had that option, I chose not to. And then Tom Penny, um, a year later, the game came out and he was super into it. He went to the um the very first calling. And, you know, he's really hyping all of us up about this game. And me and Kieran, um, all three of us were living together at the time. Um, but we were just super, me and Kieran were just super anti. We're like, you know, we don't have time for this, basically. Um, but eventually Tom managed to sit us down. Uh, we opened some Welcome to Wraith. We played some Sealed. And that's where it all shifted. My whole kind of, you know, being like, from went from I don't want anything to do with this game to wow this game is first of all it was really refreshing um you know we sat down just the game the flow of the game was just so different than anything I've ever experienced before and after the first game I'm pretty sure I lost with Tom being on one life and that's when that's when something clicked and I was like okay I need to figure out how to win you know and that was a big turning point for me was that realization of, okay, okay, I really want to know how to win in this game because you kind of, you notice all these things and there's so much subtlety and so much depth to the strategy um, that, that, that really changed. And both me and Kieran, a week later, we both just bought all the singles we needed. We both um, opened, um, yeah, we just basically went online and uh, just Bolt, like bought tier one lists kind of thing so that really started us being like okay we just went from i'm never playing this game to i want to be the best player in this game no, very always. very quickly yeah 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 absolutely um but yeah so that was probably a month before the first um constructed calling in auckland um that would have been december 2019 and one of the sealed games that we played, I opened a tectonic plating, so I was like, okay, I guess I'm playing Bravo. Um, but of course I couldn't, the 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 Johnny enemy couldn't just say, I'm gonna play this grindy control, you know, um fatigue style Bravo. So I ended up playing Agro Bravo, which um was just ridiculous. You know, I was running scars for scars, like one copy of a snatch with scalers and all this kind of uh, like all this kind of nonsense. Um but yeah, I, I still managed to do like decent, um basically like a decent uh win rate. I managed to top eight like I think all of the roads roads to callings and all that kind of stuff. So I was I was getting decent results despite um the deck just you know looking back being just terrible um but i i did always have this affinity for brute and um you guys probably remember the welcome to wraith meta brute was the the dog nobody you know if you played brute like just forget about it it was just kind of um the deck the out of the four heroes no one was really paying attention to the hero um I was I I've always have been drawn to brute, but I didn't have a tunic, you know. And I was just like, I already have a tectonic plating. Um, I might as well just stick to guardian and and see how we do. Um, and and yeah, like that was that was a time 
in flesh and blood history that th there were basically no um, decent, well, there were some uh, decent brute players, but it was no one was really pushing the list to what it could be. And um, yeah, then the first calling came. Um, the Jettas, to be honest, like, um, I completely lost, you know, I, I did all the practice. I didn't do too well. I lost my first round. Um, I managed to win a bunch of rounds in a row, but I was kind of, uh, the two, actually the two losses that I remember really well during that first calling with the one, one of them was actually to you, Brendan. Um, <laughs> we versed each other that first calling and that was when, that was the first time I kind of got to experience the, the ninja control, the fatigue, you know, because, um, I knew that, that you and Sasha were running some kind of um control style ninja but i was just like oh whatever i'll just fatigue them you know like, i don't know what they're, i don't know what, what, what they're gonna do <laughs> but yeah that was that was really strange because i was kind of like expecting i was like well you know he's gonna start playing his combo line soon and then you just go kadachi kadachi pass and i'll just be like all right sweet i got a full grip let's go let's go you know and then i do all this stuff and then you're just like red unmovable my turn, Kadachi, Kadachi, drone. And I'd be like, oh, oh, <laughs> oh no. When it clicked, when it clicked what was happening, it was, it was over. Um, but yeah, so that was one of the uh, memorable games was the loss to you. And the second one was to Nick Butcher, who was um, playing a very solid warrior list. And that was another case of me just being like, oh, just run at them with my red cartilage crushes, you know, slow them down. But um, no, he, he also played really well and got the best of me. Um, but yeah, that was, so that was, that, that was the first, my first major tournament, you could say. Um, but that definitely just kind of like sparked the fire um, up my bum. And I really wanted to learn and get better at the game. And then um, a few weeks later, I got my tunic. I started playing brute, and um, things oh, really picked up <laughs> and, in that regard. Yeah. And then yeah, Command and Conquer came out, and I was just like, "This guy has six power. This card's great in brute." Um, so yeah, the Command and Conquer pummel strategy in brute um, got me pretty far, actually. But, yeah. What? What? Yeah. What drew you to, to Brute other than, you know, being being a Johnny, as you say, and wanting to uh, play something off the beaten track? Was there anything else about Brute, like any of the kind of design elements of the class itself that really drew you to it? Um, I just love Intimidate Mechanic because of how much it... Um, once you kind of... I think one, like I, once you start playing with, you know, the, the at the time, some of the best players... Um, the the better the player you're versing, the more impact Intimidate had. And that was something that I found really interesting was that, um, firstly, was that at, on the surface level, Brute seems like a very random class. You know, you have the rolls on the scapskin leathers, um, you have the random self-discard mechanic, and also, you know, you don't really know what's going on with your opponent with the Intimidates. But the more you play the class, the more you realize how much control you have over all that random factor and how much actually how good the class is once you kind of hone on those, the, those, um, you know, the, the, 
um, the kind of variance, what might look like variance, but actually isn't. You know, it's this card, card at random from your hand. If you only have one card left, then you know exactly what you're discarding. So there's a lot of kind of, I found it re to really be interesting from that regard, but also Barraging Beatdown is just a powerhouse. You know, I feel like that card really um, made me appreciate the class, is that um, bar the power of Barraging Beatdown and a club swing, you know, you have a two-card hand that puts so much pressure on your opponent. First of all, you get an Intimidate, which already messes with their blocks, and then you have, basically, if they're kind of like want to really hold their five or four card hand you're just getting so much damage through so um that definitely really helped me but also i feel like the more you play flesh and blood the more you um I've, with all other of the three classes so i mean of the three heroes you had the katsu the dorinthia and the the bravo all three of them heavily rely on on her triggers roots and and reina has no on her triggers. You know, Brute as a class is the only class that doesn't have any on her triggers, um, which I feel like isn't very appealing for a, a new player because you're just like, okay, how do I actually get value from this? But um, once you kind of, um, you know, scratch the surface a little bit and dig deeper, deeper, like Intimidate is just so powerful against exactly what Brendan was playing, which was Ninja Control. And I feel like, um, that was just the most amazing medical because Brute actually fulfilled that role of dealing with those fatigue control strategies if you knew what you were doing. But because no one was playing it, it just made your job so much easier, you know? Yep, the underrepresentation um, of uh, Brute at that tournament was the gamble. But uh, famously, Isaac yeah. Olsen was uh, one of the, the big dogs that was on that deck. And But we did put him on coverage round one, so of course he did take his round one loss <laughs> oh, in classic fashion. Poor Isaac. Poor Isaac. <laughs> I, definitely, I definitely came in with the uh, the leading question there to Carol on Brute because um, Brute, you know, one of my favorite heroes, I am very passionate about the the discussion of of where the rng comes about in brute and where it doesn't uh to, to carol's point so i'm glad that uh we got carol to uh echo some of my sentiments there <laughs> yeah and and on that topic i kind of want to talk about scapskins because it, it's one of those things that um either sells you on brute or really deters you mm -hmm. from brute you know because a lot of the time people are just like oh my goodness you know i rolled a one again and why does it always happen <laughs> and um I found really um, kind of like as you kind of keep on playing and get your reps in, uh, one of the things about Scapskins I found is rolling a one against a very aggressive deck just means you're giving them so much more tempo and so much power to swing back at you. But if you roll a one against a very passive control deck, the things, the hit back is just so minimal that it's actually worth the risk so i've always kind of seen it as like a spectrum like the more control your opponent is the more you should be rolling because the more value you can get out of those rolls and like the it's just less punishing for um for you to roll low or a one um whereas it's very risky to do that against aggro um so that's something that i've always kind of tried to uh, convey whenever anyone is, uh, you know, if you want to start playing Brute um, and you are worried about that variance, whether it's Leviah or, or Reina, 
just keep that in the back of your mind being like, how big can the hit back be if I roll a one? Um, I think that's a really important uh, lesson to to learn when you're playing scaps, scap skins. And uh, trust me, I've been in those situations where a roll of the leathers depends whether you you make it the semi-final or not. You know, it's uh, there's there is always that kind of excitement to it. Um, but also, I feel like it's it, it is that factor that deters a lot of people from from the deck and. I think that's why Reiner hasn't seen as much success as some of the other um, heroes is because of that. But um, yeah, heavy heavy control meta, just go Reiner. Roll them, roll them scabbies. It's funny because I feel like Reiner in actuality is like one of the lower variance classes. That might be because the general build for him is a bit more mid-rangey. Um, mm-hmm. and your drief seems a little less draw dependent, but if you compare that to like if we go back to Monarch meta, we look at the aggro decks, like even chain, um, and particularly some certain builds of chains where, I mean, miles ahead of Reinar in terms of variance, but Reinar somehow always mm-hmm. gets the label of being the variance class because he has you know a piece of armor that you, I mean, most of the time, I'm like, you don't most games you do not have to utilize it. You can for an upside and it is a risk versus reward kind of thing. Um, and like you said, mm-hmm. you know, versus control, you can kind of take that risk a lot more. But just because this one piece of armor, it's just like Reinar gets this this rap as the variance class, and I think it's really funny. Yeah, I think it's it's worth noting that yeah, a lot of the um, I I do agree with you, Brendan, that it's not actually that high variance class. It's as variance as you make it, really. Um, but yeah, I do want to say that even regarding scap skins, uh, my personal approach has always just to be. If you don't have to roll, just don't do it. Don't um, it. Most yeah. of the games and and in tournament plays, um, yeah, like I mean, I've I've played and I I would usually play in a way where I don't have to roll scabbies at mm. all in the game, or just um, r- roll at that perfect turn when I like pick stacks on like a tome of Fyandel, and it's you know uh, kind of like basically set up this turn where like I'm versing a Dorinthia, let's say, and we're both on five life or something like that. And I, I made sure to pitch sack my Tome of Fyandel. I still have my gambler's gloves. I set the term and okay, this is the one where I roll, you know? And if I roll, if I get those two action points, I hit that term and I slam them with, with a bunch of intimidates and kind of push through and win the game. But other than that, it's, if if you don't have to roll, don't roll. Basically, it's like a, it's it's something to be very mindful of. Yeah, I like to I like to often refer to it as a as a bit of a get out of jail free card. If you look at if you look when people complain, they go, oh, I rolled these ones on scab skins. You go like, okay, what if we take a step back? If we had played that game and not rolled the scab skins, you know, like would the game have been the same, different? Could you have used it? You know, if you're about to lose the game, could you have used it then? But would you have maybe needed to use it on a turn where you just had twelve damage coming out of your hand naturally? So. It's uh, it's actually I actually think like you say it's maybe less appealing to to new players, but I actually think it's a really important class for new players to pick up and and kind of learn the game of flesh and blood uh, because of you know the way that you can do so many things that are fundamentals of flesh and blood. Like you just talked about pitch stacking, for instance, uh, trading cards like trading four card hands is is really important with brutes. So yeah, absolutely, and that is that is absolutely true. It's just like you have that option. It's like okay, you're falling behind in the game. Um, you're realizing that your window to win the game is getting smaller and smaller. Um, that is absolutely the time to start taking those risks. And maybe that is exactly what you need to to push back and, and get back um, 
get back in the game, you know. Um, so yeah, that that I guess that that is another point. Um, but yeah, talking about Reiner, what do you guys think of um, Reiner and the current meta game? Because I love I love the concept. <laughs> I, that's the thing that I love about your guys' podcast. By the way, I just want to give you guys a huge shout out. You know, you're doing a great job. I love how you're um, spitting out a ton of just invaluable um, competitive content, which is just so great to see. Um, but I love, and, and from your podcast, I, you guys, you guys, um, probably, um, understand and value the concept of pitch stacking as much as I do. And I'm just stoked that now when the, when the winter's coming and things are slowing down, I think we're going to see that a lot more, you know? Um, so yeah. I don't well, know what I was going. Well, we do really, we really appreciate the kind words. And in terms of Brute, it's a, it's a funny story because Brute is probably my tier zero for like the PTI. I do think mm-hmm. that you know that's what I've been on for the past few weeks. That's what I've been testing. I'm probably going to switch just because we may have found a deck that is um, quite strong and just you know might come as a surprise to some people. So. That will motivate me to get out proof. If not, I think Brute is probably the best choice you can make in this meta, right? So let's say you go to the PTI on Saturday. Um, it's possible that in a in like a Pro Tour Invitational that half your matches could be buys, right? They could all be prison players on like dirtily, uh, dirtily uh, Aura decks. And that's just a joke for you. And it's fantastic. And like uh, the first, if you're going to ask a question and be forced to answer it before you play in this meta, it's just like, how do I beat prison? But it's more importantly, it's like, how do I slap Prism? Because you know you're going to be playing a lot of them, and you might as well just mm-hmm. roll straight through them. So I think, you know, you're you're really Reinar is just peak. And then if we think about Frost too, so we have Frost coming in, we have Oldheim coming in, and we just have like this maybe this narrative coming from you know the Vegas where that that might say that you know control turtley fatigue s deck decks can be successful in the meta. Well, what's another good way to counter that? Say it's not Prism, say it's Oldheim. You have evasion, you have barraging beatdown, you can take away their entire hand, the defensor auctions do nothing. Um, so Reiner attacks you know, the meta on both fronts there, and I think it's a fantastic class. The only questions to kind of ask with the deck are, you know, if you do run into aggressive, you know, other aggressive kind of matchups throughout, how do you shore up that? Because I think other than that, you look, you look very, very well positioned right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Put, yeah. put the question flipped on us here. We're... Carol, we're we're the hosts. You're the uh, you're the guest. I don't. <laughs> no, I um. Yeah, 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 yeah. This isn't session blood. No, no, no. I mean, it can be. We can make this the session blood uh, episode. No, I, I um. Look, I haven't stopped playing brute personally. Uh, even through the last the last um, monarch season, I played a lot of brute. Uh, primarily, actually, almost exclusively Olivia. Um, as Brendan will know, he'd have to be like, I need, I need more games of Livia. Come on, Brendan, let's play some Livia tonight. Um, but you know, I'm a, obviously a big, big day one Reiner fan. Uh, so I do think, you know, I think Reiner has a good, a good position in this format. I also think Livia has a good position in this format. Um, so I'm excited to see like what decks people actually bring to the first kind of, cause this weekend will be the first kind of taste we get of the new format, right? As the same with Auckland in the Monarch season, we got a, a, a pro quest that told us a little bit about what people were thinking with. With the new meta, we're going to see the same this weekend in Dallas. So, you know, I'm excited to see what people uh, bring to the table. Um, I'm hoping to see some players, you know, bring out the brutes, uh, be reserved on their scab skins, play tight, you know, and craft these game states. Um, and then, yeah, see like where that means that brute shakes out after that. You know, will it be a slower, a very much slower format where we see, uh, um, <clears throat> you know, 
the maybe maybe Reiner from the Savage Lands uh, do some work, or uh, maybe we might need to change a little bit. But yeah, no, I think it's uh, I think it's in a good spot to answer your question, Kara. Yeah, Tier one yeah. for sure, right? Coming into this, there, I mean, there's there's probably no argument that does it. It's below tier one. Like it's it's a great pick, um, and I think just in the context of there likely being a epidemic of prisms, like it doesn't get any better than playing Reinar. I think people's challenge will be is a lot of people haven't played much Brute. You know, uh, to your two point Carol, yeah. if we look at the Welcome to Wraith meta, you know, Brute was bottom of the, the picking order, um, even coming into the format after that, Arcane Rising, you know, still wasn't a lot of people who are currently playing the game playing the game. Um, we got into, you know, Crucible meta. That's probably where Brute had its its uh, its peak, right? And the Crucible meta had a really good time with Arc Smash being printed into a, a dash format. Um, but since then, you know, Monarch, we really haven't seen much... Um, much brute find favor so i think if you look at you know the, the challenge for people is probably going to be learning how to play a brute it is a very different play style to say if you've come from a ninja yeah. or a warrior or um you know a, a rune blade so it, it's probably you know one of the things that'll be a bit tougher yeah absolutely i think that that is kind of the the two sides of it right the first is like um if, if you're expecting a lot of these prism prism um decks kind of turning up and if you find brute to be very favorable uh you, you might think oh there could be a lot of these uh, rhinos and levias popping up but on the other hand is um what do the players actually feel comfortable with and like feel comfortable playing because we saw just so many um uh, that the meta was saturated with chains and a lot of full uh, it just seems that especially in the states, a lot of um, the players that would be their first deck. You know, they got into the game, uh, they started playing chain, and that is just such a different kind of play style to um, not not only brute, but you know, most most of the classes. So the, um, that is like I find it's as a spectator, as a fan of the game, I find it so so interesting on how how basically. Uh, the weekend is going to uh, shape the metagame and what what we're going to see. It's interesting because I think we can, if you want to use data to kind of help predict what the meta might look like, you can kind of flip that uh, flip that that narrative on the other side, and that's that if you looked at Prism, um, Prism was played universally despite its just abysmal results throughout Road to Nationals. Obviously, it won the calling that only reinforces this, but... Prism is just shown to be a deck that will be played by players regardless of how it does, whether they like the playstyle, like the art, the theme, whatever it is, Prism will show up in droves. And then you tack on a calling a calling win with that. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's got to just be reinforcing it. So I think that, yeah, I think, you know, using that kind of same logic for why they're, you know, with why Chain was popular and things like that, Prism is definitely going to be, I think, one of the most, uh, most represented decks in uh, PTI on Sunday. Yeah, yeah, that's fair enough. And I think it is that kind of um, thing that um, sometimes all it takes is for your opponent not to really know what they're doing to just kind of, you know, um, just go all out with the victory. Like, and I think Phantasm is a is a mechanic that really helps with that. If your opponent just either doesn't have any six power cards or doesn't quite know how to play around it, you can just basically win the game on the spot, and I think it it could be it, it could be a factor that's just so appealing about um, the class in general. You know, you just kind of um, do your thing, and all of a sudden you're like twenty life ahead with a bunch of um, 
dolls and stuff like that. So I wonder if that's a factor as well, to be honest. I want to um, I want to ask you. We've talked about brute, but I also want to know, Carol, what are what are some of the other classes that you really enjoy playing in this game? Either as you know, before your time as a, a developer, or even you know, when you're playing casual games, what are the, what are the heroes that for your playstyle you enjoy playing? Yeah, so I kind of went from guarding to 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 brute, and brute has be, um, has been my go to um, class for for ages. But uh, actually. Um, when Monarch came out, that's when I realized that I'm not a brute player, that I'm a Rhino player because <laughs> Levi was doing my head in, you know, um, uh, for the first kind of like three, four months that I was uh, like trying to play Levi. It's, it's just such a complex and such a different take um, that, um, you know, I, I, I haven't been a fan of Levi, um, but it's it's still a, an extremely powerful hero. It's just not really my kind of my cup of tea, which is which is quite strange. Um, but um, I've always been a fan of Ranger. I mean, Azalea has been. Uh, I've always had that soft spot for Azalea because it's um, because of how you know nice and kind of on theme it is to just kind of you just feel like you're loading the bow you're shooting it your on heads are just so powerful we had the red and the ledger so I've, I've always had that affinity for azalea and and viscerai when um arcane rising came out um viscerai has has been um definitely a hero that i've i've tried and tried and tried to to build and do well with but um especially in arcane rising it's it's always been that case of you know can i get can I close out the game? Yep. And can I push through against my opponent just trying to like slap their hand, whole hand down and defend everything? Um, so those, yeah, Azalea and Viscerai has have always been um, kind of the heroes that I've tried to do well with. Uh, could never quite um, figure out how to um, how to translate that to tournament results. Um, but I think because of that, I do have an affinity for Lexi and Briar in the new set. Um, to be honest, I, I, I actually I actually really enjoy all three heroes, um, just because each hero has its own kind of uh, side of it that I really, really enjoy. Um, but probably out of the three, Lexi has definitely been my go-to, and it's the, the one that I've kind of affiliated the most with. It's just... It just feels so much fun, and um, basically, I just love how many options you have in terms of deck building and how many directions you can take. And I really enjoyed that kind of um, openness and that freedom, you know, to just kind of like build whichever way I want. Um, whereas before, when we had just kind of like two, three sets, it always felt a little bit restrictive, you know, like this is the optimal way to build a deck. This is the optimal way to build a deck. There wasn't much wiggle room. Whereas with with the whole um, elemental talent, you just kind of open all that up, mm-hmm. um, and I find that really like really uh, kind of interesting. And I kind of like can kind of express my creativity in a way in deck building. I, f- I really like that aspect. Um, I know some people kind of you know just want the best list, and I just want to play the best list and um, play that. But yeah. Definitely, I think Lexi's my favorite. I think Briar would be my number two and Alden number three in terms of Tales heroes, but um, I do really like all three. And I think um, 
yeah. My top three favorite heroes uh, that I like to play with would... I, I wonder if maybe even Lexi is number one for me now. Ooh, over Reiner, Reiner. That's blasphemy, Carol. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's, it's close. It's, it's definitely close. Um, but yeah, those would definitely be my like, three favorite heroes. There's, there's, a rumbling, there's a rumbling happening in the Savage Lands right now at, the, at those words coming out of your mouth. <laughs> I was, I was going to say as well, on the, on the Viscerai front, I mean, I remember we, we sat, uh, you, um, me, and, and Karen had talked for Viscerai. I talked about Viscerai for two hours on a, on a podcast. So um, you know, we've definitely, definitely hashed that over before an Arcane Rising meta. That was you know, probably what, over a year ago now. But uh, you know, sitting there, how do, how do you know? How do you break viscerai? How do you do well with viscerai? What's the secrets? That's uh, yeah. it's so funny you bring that one well, up. That was great. Actually. That was great because, like, I mean, back then we had all these incredible cards. You know, like with Crucible getting spoiled, and you know, you you see the Dread Triptych and like the potential of that. You see the you had, get the meet and greets for the aggro, and you you kind of had all these pieces, and still it was just so hard. Um, I still find it hilarious when, when Karen actually um, was, you know, completely switched from his Katsu ways and, and took Viserai down to Wellington for a double double whammy. I think it was Road to Nationals. Yeah, and, yeah, it, just, it was just too hard for her to, to, to get there. I think there was one game where he, he could have he could have been the first kind of, like, major top eight for Viserai. Um, but, yeah, he couldn't quite get there. But, yeah. I think, you know, Viscerites seems um, kind of to, you have the, Viscerites seems to be pretty, pretty, like, decent, I guess, like, now. Yeah, I got some um, tools, right? Like, the Creepers aren't bad, yeah. and uh, Stingasorshi isn't bad. Um, I mean, also, Monarch had a few pieces as well, with, like, Vexing Malice and Arcanic. There's actually quite a bit of tools that have been added since you guys were trying to close out games back in Arcane Rising. I yeah. think that the job is probably yeah. a little bit easier i mean so not arcanics all this good stuff so i, I assume we'll see a, a surgence of viscerai soon well, enough yeah i mean we're, we're gonna be putting up a, a viscerai uh deck profile deck tech next next week brendan so uh you know yeah after we win the pti with it right that's a secret spice i do want to talk about draft um just because i mean we have a yeah. calling we have the tales of aria premiere draft calling in Dallas here, you know, your flag, your flagship, you know, kind of limited format from what I understand. This is the one that was pitched to us as being the golden boy of all draft formats. And now we're about to play it at the highest level. What are, what are your thoughts kind of broadly? And then we'll get, kind of dive into details as well on Tales of Aria draft. Carol, is it truly the best, the best draft format of all time in your opinion? Um, for, I would say for flesh and blood, definitely. I'm trying to like think back to my olden magic days, but I that that's something that I'm really happy that has been incorporated uh, incorporated into um, flesh and blood is the idea. You know, um, for those for for those of you guys who are familiar with with Magic: The Gathering, it's like for me, I've always loved the idea of splashing. You know, splashing is a concept that. You can you have a certain amount of colors. You can play. You can choose one color, which is kind of like I guess the equivalent of choosing a class. But you can splash, like give it a, a bit of a sprinkle of cards from from something else. And that's always been a concept that I really enjoyed, and that I've always kind of found that flesh and blood could do with. 
Um, and it kind of just adds that complexity and dynamic to the draft where, okay, I can play Ranger, um, but I'm not only limited to Ranger cards and uh, generic cards. You know, there, there are cards that I can take from um, the other side, whether it's, um, you know, we have the Ice and Lightning, for example. Um, you know, you can build a very solid Lightning deck with Lexi and splash a bit of ice, you know, get those few few key ice cards that are going to completely change the, the, the way your deck plays out um, and things like that. So I really like how that really, in my opinion, opened up the, the flesh and blood draft. Um, and it's something that I think it's not only opened up, but it really, really, really opened up. Like, I feel like there's just such a big difference between drafting Tales of Aria and any other previous set because of that. Um, yeah. And yeah, it just, it's, it's a, I've drafted a lot of Tales of Aria, but I'm still learning. I'm still, um, and I still feel excited about it. You know, it's still something um, that I feel like you, you can discover, you can keep on rediscovering and rediscovering. And I think that really sets it as, um, in my opinion, the best draft format because of that, because you constantly have different options on how you approach it, and it's just, yeah, it's it's just really cool. I just really like it. Yeah, I find the the concept of no generics pretty fascinating in draft. It feels, you know, it's interesting that ninety nine percent of your picks are committal in you know very committal, very committal to an extent to one you know a direction right where you can't just kind of stay open and sit in these generics that might be good in everything right um it's also mm -hmm. interesting in your draft strategy is do you start drafting elemental cards and then do you go into a here a class but everybody does that because obviously if you were the one doing that and the other people weren't you would probably have the better deck 100 percent of the time um mm -hmm. or do you take a hybrid strategy and because you know these like powerful very powerful gas class cards are going to come around because people aren't willing to you know pick something quite yet they want to stay open they want to stay in their elements they want to be safe can you pick those up early and maybe try to get those elements in pack two pack three when people go over class cards it's a it's a fascinating concept and the psychology of it has played out vastly different over the few <laughs> the few drafts i've done but i want to ask you kind of our first first like medium question it might be a little hard so answer this as carol from carol from session blood and not carol developer so i'm i'm in dallas right i've I've top baited sealed, you know, I'm elated, but I sit down and I've got a draft. Drafting Tales of Wire for the first time. What are the tips that you give me to Carol? What in your mind are some of the key things that I need to know to, you know, to just be, to start being successful in this format? Mm -hmm. uh, the way I look at it is on those very first few picks, you have a decision a lot of the time of, do I go for? Do I lock in for a class, a class card that could lock me? You know, it's restrictive, but it's very powerful. Um, or do I go for an element which leaves me open, but it might not be as powerful because it, it kind of lacks that power of a class card. So, in my opinion, it's it's kind of the decisions always between power and consistency. Do I want to stay open, go for the safe pick, or do I want to risk it? and go for, for the you know, high-risk, high-reward type pick. Um, that's the kind of... And, and I feel like that kind of depends on how you are as a player as well, which I find quite interesting. Is like, um, you know, when we do 
when we do the first, the pick one, pack one um, kind of series um, on the Flesh and Blood YouTube, you, you all of a sudden, like, you, you know, we all kind of go into it in thinking, oh, this is this is so obvious. Of course you picked this, you know, like mm-hmm. this is just like the best cut in the pack or whatever, or like oh, this leaves me so open. And then you watch the video and everyone picked something completely different, you know? So um, I think, yeah, one of the things that's kind of, yeah, the first kind of, um, I guess, tip I'd say is to really see it as this kind of trade-off of power versus consistency. Um, but also more so, a lot more so, I feel like, than other draft formats. And this is where that decision kind of hinges on is understanding the signals. Um, signals are huge in any draft format, but especially in this one because of how many directions you have, um, how many options you have to go. Um, so if you go for a very powerful pick and you pick, let's say you pick the best Oldham card, you see some extremely powerful Oldham Majestic, you know, and then five pack picks down, you notice that all the Oldham cards are being hosed, you know, like how do you adjust? Um, do you still force it? Do you still force it and basically try and give a big signal to the person next to you that there's no Oldham here, don't try even bother to go into this and then really hope for a strong pack two where you you be the one who kind of gets the, the current of the Oldham stuff or do you switch and, you know, kind of... Um, cut your losses and move into something else. So I think um, signals is a thing that any draft is very, you know, any draft hinges on on signals, and I think it's really important. But it's um, even more so important in this particular one because um, there's a lot of subtlety to signals. You could be like, okay, they might be in this class, and I'm not getting much of this particular element, um, but which can like ultimately shape your draft. So I think, yeah, my tip would be to, if you're not familiar with picking up on signals, try to practice that. Try to practice um, trying to get a read. You know, it's especially around that pick four or five. I feel like that is a good time to really be kind of okay. I have a feeling that, like, you just get a feeling that the table is uh, picking this particular class or element and leaving this, which I can jump into. I think that's really important to to practice. Um, I think those would be the two major, major tips. Um, I guess the the third one also is evaluating fusion cards. Um, So there are a lot of powerful cards with very powerful fuse effects, but if you pick those, um, you know, you, you have cards with, that are, have fuse that are extremely powerful when they're fused, but when they're not fused, they're actually really lackluster. Um, but then on the other side, you have cards with extremely good stats normally, um, and they're really, you know, and getting that fuse isn't actually a nice bonus. So understanding the, the kind of the power ceiling and the power floor of these fusion cards can help you uh, make a decision. And um, I like to use the Vela Flash and Bramble Spark as an example. You know, you open a pack and you see a red Vela Flash or, and a red Bramble Spark. Both of those cards are extremely powerful when they're fused. 
Um, but you, when you look at the, at the kind of power flow of the cards, Vela Flash um, is a solid, you know, one cost, five attack, three defense. It's, it's extremely powerful. And then you look at Bramble Spark and it just pings for one, which does exactly the same thing um, that a blue version would do, for example. So I think that can, like, evaluate, critically evaluating fusion cards like that can really help you um, kind of choose the path you want to go and the picks you want to go with yeah and you know i'm yeah. i'm so excited to do more tales draft i've only done three so far i could honestly i could draft this i could sit down for a full weekend i could do my own uh Pukanui pro tour i think carol uh with some friends and, and draft this all weekend because it's um it's a set so far that i've i've really enjoyed i know we've we've been discussing it a lot within, within our group right brendan about just some of these mm -hmm. things heading into dallas you know around signals around uh you know power versus consistency and that's um it, yeah i would echo those those sentiments as well i did want to you know ask one yeah. more thing carol if that's all right uh to, to go back you know you've talked about uh your time as a player um, but you are now of course uh on the development team with lss and i wanted to ask from your perspective you know as a, as a player coming into the development team like what does that mean to you what do you feel that you are you know, I guess you're bringing to the to the table as a, a developer, or what does it mean for you to make that transition from a um, a player to a developer? Yeah, so it's it's been um, it's been extremely interesting experience. First of all, because it kind of feels like as a player, you always kind of feel like there's this curtain, right, of the, the stuff that's going like behind the scenes and stuff. And when it's lifted, it's kind of like, wow, you kind of get a, a lot. Um, bigger picture and stuff like that um but for me especially as a player it's been really interesting from the perspective that i get to play against some of the best players in the world you know we have um we have jason we have jacob chris chris jesus and, and newson and there's just a lot of um everyone that i play with is an extremely extremely you know like just next level player so um i feel like definitely throughout my experience as a de de developer i've been learning a lot about the game and the it's it's crazy because i always feel like you know oh i've i've, I've mastered this aspect of the game i've mastered this aspect of the game and then all of a sudden um you know, I play against someone and they do something completely crazy and completely out of the blue that makes me realize that um, there's just so, so many more levels, you know, so many more levels to the equation. Um, but as a, as a, also from, from the perspective, you know, I kind of mentioned that um, I, as a player, I've always liked to play these kind of old off kilter decks, whether like off meta decks, and I, I've always been kind of driven to to find something that's like surprising and and I I love the concept of doing some crazy. I, I love the idea of combo. I love combo decks in general. Um, um, but yeah, in terms of what I kind of want to contribute is. I wouldn't. I just love the idea of kind of um, adding a little bit more of these janky kind of you know the players that might not be completely optimal, but you you might lose like nine games in a row and then win that one game that you pull off the some some crazy jank combo kind of thing. And I think that that's kind of what I like 
to um, that's kind of like what motivates me to incorporate more in, into the game, I guess. And, and that's kind of like where my mentality going in sits is, you know, the, a lot of these cards can be extremely powerful and, and consistent, but why don't we add some jank, you know? <laughs> that's basically, yeah, that's basically uh, where I sit at the moment. What? And awesome. One one quick fire question, Carol, because I have to ask this anytime that we talk to uh, a staff member of LSS. Outside of you know your role as a dev, when you're in the studio, whether it be playing games, maybe you're doing a draft, whatever it might be, who has the best uh, win rate in the uh, LSS staff in your um, in your just your in your casual game players? Not that it's casual, I assume. Um, it's really tough. <laughs> I don't. Yeah. Just say it's, you can just say it's not Sasha. Just say it's not Sasha. <laughs> um, Sasha's a great player, but it's, it's, I, I can't, I can't, I have no idea. That's okay. No idea, Sasha only plays Azalea <laughs> for the past like 12 months, so his win rate is in the tank. Um, anyway, Kel, we do want to thank you so much for coming on. I want to give you a short, you know, amount of time to plug anything you want to, shout out anything you want to. So go ahead. The floor is yours. Yeah, thanks. I mean, thanks for having me on. And, and guys, just keep on doing the great work you're doing. Um, in terms of the plugs, I guess, uh, you can find if you're, if you're still, I mean, you know, the Hayden and, and, and Brendan are great at kind of explaining the, the, the kind of highly competitive strategy. But if you're still kind of um, starting out, you're looking for, for some um, kind of base level advice and stuff, um, the fab tcg youtube has a lot of great content you can watch some um uh, introduction to drafts or blitz or um i think there are some cc some cc content in there as well and it's just very kind of like um good overall explanation of of things um definitely check out session blood you know me and my boy kieran's uh podcast that we've been doing for for a while there's some great content there as well um but yeah just enjoy enjoy the game i guess well thank you so much for joining us again it was a great time having you um and you know i hope to see you again soon in the sunny country of new zealand but anyway that's going to be active player turn zero one initial turn it's time to run